Welcome to the Cascadia Solidarity Zone, a podcast by members of Seattle DSA. I'm your host, Joshua. SDSA is organized into caucuses and working groups. Caucuses are for internal organizing for SDSA members to get together amongst themselves for discussion, reading groups, or social events, whereas working groups are for external organizing, like electoral campaigns and advocating for immigrant rights or eco-socialist policies. One of SDSA's caucuses is the Queer and Feminist Caucus, or QFC, not to be confused with the grocery store chain of the same name, which is owned by Kroger. The QFC is for queer feminists and socialist feminism in Seattle. Today I'm joined by two members of the QFC, Takeshi and Katie. Hey, I'm Takeshi. He, him. I've been a part of Seattle DSA for about three years um, and a co-chair on the Queer and Feminist Caucus for close to a year. Uh, I'm Katie, you, she, her. I joined Seattle DSA in February of 2018, I think. Yeah, I was in the LA chapter briefly before that, and I am also one of the four co-chairs of the Queer and Feminist Caucus. The QFC recently started a new ongoing series called the Queer and Feminist Labor Happy Hour. I spoke to Katie and Takeshi just after their first installment, which was on May 9th, and discussed the Pawtucket Mill Strike of 1824. Here's my conversation with Katie and Takeshi. Takeshi and Katie, welcome to the Cascadia Solidarity Zone. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. How's it going? Pretty good. Before we get started, I just wanted to have a quick check-in. How are you both doing? Obviously, we're living in interesting times with the coronavirus slash COVID-19 crisis. A lot of people are out of work. So how are you guys doing? Ugh, um, yeah, take it away, Takeshi. <laughs> thanks, Katie. Um yeah, I'm I'm feeling lucky in some ways to have kept my job. Um, and certainly a big part of that is keeping my insurance. So I'm able to talk to my therapist, which has been helping me get through this hard time. Uh, yeah, I imagine it, it's been challenging. It's been challenging. Uh, I, um, I was seeing a therapist very infrequently. And uh, I have kind of entrance just through the the ACA marketplace so I still mm-hmm. have that but the schedule got all screwed up as a result of this and I need to get like back on the calendar but it's always so hard because yeah. it's like uh I'm not even sure how to get on the calendar now <laughs> because I used to do it do it just like whenever I was in in the office but how about you Katie oh, man um well, I'd like to join the chorus of Huge shout outs to all of our mental health workers who are just zooming their little hearts out and <laughs> keeping our brains working. Insanely good. Um, yeah, I'm also a, uh, uh, yeah, I got laid off um, in early March, like many people did. So I am breaking in that tasty, tasty unemployment. Um, the Bernie Bucks are really, really helping. Um, that's <laughs> really that's good. So I'm, I'm cruising along okay, looking for work. A lot of uh, a lot of baking, a lot of Duolingo, a lot of zooming. Mm. Um, that's uh, yeah, that's about the size of it. <laughs> What's the last thing you baked? Ooh, these. Um, I think maybe oh, carrot cake. I made a, a big old carrot cake from my grandma's recipe. It was my nice. It's his birthday recently. 
Well, if you get cream cheese at the store, you got to live it up. Live it up good. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, well, why don't we dive right into the subject at hand, which is the Queer and Feminist Caucus new uh, ongoing program with the Labor History Happy Hour. I wanted to just first ask, where did this idea come from? Boy, um, well, so I think it kind of grew out of um, you were having you know, semi-frequent social meetings before the uh, whole pandemic moment uh, came upon us, you know, where we would maybe watch something, have sort of a potluck vibe, um, have sort of like, you know, a learning section, but then just kind of a social connection and relationship building where, you know, if it was Halloween, we'd be like, everybody dress up and we're going to watch the Buffy Halloween episode and talk about Caliban and the Witch and potluck stuff. It was, it was pretty sick. Looking forward to uh, doing that in person again one day. But we sort of have um, uh, transformed that into a Zoom happy hour series, but also just a lot of talking about gardens. Gotta say, um, queer people under pressure really just harden our little hearts out is something that (laughs) I've been seeing a lot. We have a a big um, relationship-focused organizing uh, in, our, in our caucus and I think yeah, this, this definitely grew out of that um, where we used to oh man, Keisha, we used to go to Dacha Diner and, and have planning meetings and I miss that. It was very nice. Yeah. I think we all miss meeting people in public spaces. <laughs> oh man, remember buildings. <laughs> Powerful stuff. So you all just had the first I guess installment of this what will be a series of uh, kind of social events or happy hours. And you started with the Pawtucket mill strike, which took place in 1824. Can you tell me how you all decided to start with that particular strike? In case you want to take this one away. Yeah. So our, our, one of our fellow co-chairs um, has been really, really spearheading this effort. Um, uh, and they put together a list of, I think, 28 or 30 uh, different events in chronological order uh, through American history. Um, Events that are particular to the labor movement and things um, that might be of particular interest to our queer and feminist caucus. Uh, And so the thought was, let's kind of start at the, as near, uh, as near we can put the word beginning to, uh, to these events. Uh, And that is the uh, Pawtucket Mill strike. So we'll get more into exactly what the strike was and what it was about and what the demands of the strikers were. But I wanted to just ask what you thought of the actual event itself. How many people did did, uh, actually show up to it? And given that it was on Zoom, how do you think it went? Mm -hmm. I mean, I had fun, but I was also, you know, had a little glass of cachaça next to me. So I (laughs) I may have been at a rosy disposition. Um, I think, geez, how many people have we, like, 10? I think at, at max we had 15. Oh, yeah. No, right. No, I remember. Yeah, that's, that's about right. Which is, I feel like that's a, that's a nice size for, for a Zoom group. Yeah. And like, of course, if we have um, people rolling up, we might do, like, the little breakout room discussion things. Um, I had a good time. I, I feel like people... Whenever I found a Zoom call, I'm just amazed by people's brains. Like people were drawing a lot of connections that, you know, 
like I definitely would have wouldn't have thought of. And it's just, you know, it's always just great to to people sort of build an analysis together in real time. Yeah, I was I was chairing, so I sadly a lot of the discussion was not something I was paying too much attention to, but there was a there's good energy there and I think uh, a lot of people got to share some good thoughts. So it was it was good. I will say that since I did actually attend the the event via Zoom, um, I personally enjoyed it. I uh, I went there to kind of see how you all were doing it, but also to participate. And it was a it was a great discussion. How would you say it compares to the pre times where you could actually have in person events? Oh man, um, notable lack of quiche and brownies. I would say <laughs> just off the bat, the the potluck aspect was. Uh, diminished <laughs> i would say yeah before all this went down i was bringing like baked goods most to most of the events and i i miss doing that yeah we had we had some some pretty some pretty kingly spreads going on yeah so i mean there's no reason we can't bring bring the costume element back <laughs> true for the stars listen society is crumbling around us like it's time for cake. This might be a little bit of a tangent, but one thing I think about often when it comes to thinking about organizing in, in Seattle DSA is how important food is to bringing people together and that the act of sharing food with another person or with other people is such a powerful bonding and community building experience that I, I wish we incorporated more in, in different aspects of DSA um, and really like that there are you know, certain kind of segments of the of our Seattle DSA community that does that well. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, listen, part of the reason that I even got sort of moseyed over to the the socialist side of things is because you know showed up somewhere and there was a table of food and I was like, well, 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 <laughs> sold. It's <laughs> looking pretty good to me. But I mean, you know, beyond that, I think just as much as we can, you know, physicalize and make real. Um, of the aspects of like you know recreation and and sharing of our labor and also just like very literally showing up for each other as a community to mm-hmm. right. you know support each other and you know, su- like support our our bodies and our spirits by like you know sharing a little joy breaking a little bread I don't know I get a little verklempt about it but um you know, in short. And all this is over. I'm going to show up to the next general meeting, ten cakes, <laughs> and lose my mind. That sounds amazing. I think you'll probably be joined by a lot of people who are eager to be sharing food with one another again. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So at the actual happy hour event via Zoom, Katie, you got to share a PowerPoint that you created uh, talking about the Pawtucket Mill strike. Obviously, on a podcast, you can't share the visual medium, but I wanted to invite you to. Share your version of it for our show and for our listeners here, if you're ready. Yeah, happy to. Um, so just a heads up, the I wanted to give a shout out to the source of this information. Um, the majority of the facts I will be saying comes from the Jacobin article, Pawtucket, America's First Factory Strike, written by Joey DeFrancesco. So thank you, Comrade Joey, for everything. Again, it's... Uh, just breaks my heart that you cannot see my collection of clip art. Mm, um, it's very good clip art. You know, perhaps another time. 
just got some vaporwave Emma Goldman up here. Really, truly inspiring. Okay. Yeah, so Pawtuck and Mill Strike. So um, as Takeshi was mentioning, we're sort of starting at the top when the whole, you know, industrial capitalism moment uh, crept into America. Um, just as an, an intro to the series, um, uh, women's labor and uh, traditionally feminized or marginalized labor uh, uh, has been super devalued um, for centuries. But um, when we look at our history, we see that um, women and queer people have been organizing their workplaces, um, whether that be wage labor or in the home, and leading movements for social change for centuries. So we are truly out here and definitely in this um I know I've felt pretty demoralized during this time, so it's it's given me a lot of um, joy and a lot of hope just to sort of look back to the past and see our you know, ancestors just doing their best holding it down. All right, so Pawtucket, um, little town in Rhode Island, the smallest state and one that I could probably eat if I really uh, applied myself. Um, so that was the first, the home of the first industrial textile mill in America. Um, in hindsight, not a great idea. Um, so it was founded in 1793. So over the next 30 years, you know, the, the capitalists sort of started encroaching more and more mills and tensions started growing between the community and the, and the owners as the owners control over the town's resources and the lives of the workers, like just grew tighter and tighter, not good vibes, negative vibes. Yeah, so the mill at first only employed children. As the town's prosperity faltered, more and more adults were driven from pre-industrial traditional work to factory work. In the 1820s, the town was financially, um, but the but culturally, the there was significant and increasing repression. And so the hands working looms were mostly of girls and women between 15 and 30, um, all of them white because the factory owners um, would not hire um, African-American or Native laborers. Part of the reason, again, that they switched from employing only children to mostly adults was parents would often, again, this is the beginning of waged labor as we know it. So like workers would just not show up routinely. Like they'd be like, oh, I actually don't want to do that today. So they wouldn't. Yeah, so the, the mill owners just like full Mr. Burns style stranglehold on the community um like within the space of a century uh century a generation um really radical transformation like they set up a huge dam to like divert water to do water power um for the mills um which took it away from artisan businesses um but you know you're like at your little like and tread loom you know my hand tread loom that's water powered I hate when people feel my water power fucked up. Um, anyway, so obviously townies were mad and they tried to fight them in court. And also, um, number one, uh, first industrial um, sabotage action in America. Shout out. Um, they like went to the mill and the, the dam in the dead of night and started like trying to tear it down with their bare hands, um, which like, we love the vibes, but did not work. The mill also owned several churches. Um, and after days of, you know, working children to the bone, they, you know, sat them down to hammer a Protestant work ethic into them. 
um, with like, you know, Bible school, they're, they're, you know, trying to change the, the culture and also bring, um, Mary religious control to, to control people's labor and lifestyles. Um, the owners also, uh, called the state and were like, we need some police forces down here because people are not buying this shit. Um, yeah, people would like, just like I mentioned, spontaneously quit, like set shit on fire. Um, you know, wander out of work in the middle of the day to go skinny dipping in the lake. Just normal things. God, wish that were me. Um, yeah. Man, I'm pissed that you guys can't see all of my bills from 9 to 5 that I've included in this PowerPoint. But anyway, um, getting to the strike in question. Um, so after this, all of this tension has been simmering, people are, like, pissed off. They're, you know, we we sort of, I'm really interested in this transition to capitalism because we can see before we accepted this as the norm and it was to us as the norm like if you just walk up to people who do not have this mode of of production or societal mode of control and propose it to them uh they don't like it generally they're like well that actually does not sound fun anyway so on may 26 uh, 1824 102 women and girls walked off the job and blocked the mill's entrances in protest of a new rule requiring them to work an hour longer per day without extra money and um, a quarter decrease in pay for power loom weavers. So a thing I like best about this strike is they were quickly joined by their entire community and led a week-long action that included mobbing the houses of owners, taking control of the streets, and setting a factory on fire. So... (laughs) Uh, that escalated quickly. Wow. Yeah. Love the energy. Um, so, yeah, a firsthand account. So local judge and spoil sport, uh, George F. Jenks, writes, um, from the street from the Pawtucket Bank across the bridge to Josiah Mills' shop is literally filled with men, women, and children, making a mob of very daring aspect, insulting the managers of cotton mills in every shape, pulling and hauling, screaming and shouting through the streets. Um, so this got intense. Um, this was, um, I'm envisioning it almost like a mini general strike. Well, it kind of had to be because they're the only, you know, mode of production was this textile work at the time, only industrial mode of production. And the entire town got shut down. This wasn't just workers striking. It was workers' families, everybody's friends. Like the community was really united. Um, and eventually, after about a week, um, someone just barbecued a mill, set the whole thing on fire, and that uh, that got the owners pretty freaked out, and they folded. Um, so then they reached a compromise with the workers, and work began again on June 3rd, after, of course, the owners had published a very whiny op-ed about how their feelings w- were hurt, um, presumably in the notes app. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah just... Baby, powerful stuff. But you can't turn back the dial on class consciousness. So the women's action here set off a strike wave that swept through the town to um, male workers um, and then on to Lowell, Providence, and other textile towns in the Northeast. So a lot of these strikes were led by women who formed the majority of the workforce at the time and were paid and treated more poorly than male workers. And so 
Yeah. Raise a glass of your preferred liquid to the memory of the women and girls of Pawtucket. Um, I think they're, I think that kicks ass and it makes me happy to think about. And it also has a lot of lessons for, um, you know, the development of policing. And also I forgot to mention, um, how mill owners leverage both religion and patriarchy to sort of solidify these, these new labor relations. Like they would employ, employ entire families, but would only pay the wages of the entire family to the male head of the household, to the father of the family. So they could sort of maintain a patriarchal structure there. Bad vibes, I believe, is, is the, uh, the Marxist term for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's some, that's some information about Pawtucket. Well, thanks for giving us that rundown, Katie. Um, so the conversation that happened at the Happy Hour event, I thought was really great. There are a number of things that people kind of picked up on that I thought might be interesting for us to talk about a little bit more in depth here. The first of which is something you just mentioned, Katie, which is the use of police force. And that this, you know, this being the early 1800s was the kind of rise and birth of what will become modern police forces, which was you know, originally born out of slave patrols, which as a side note is just an interesting tie in about how these early capitalist structures reinforced racism and institutional racism, um, both by preventing, you know, you have the mills which actively discriminated against freeds, uh, freed people and preventing black people from being employed there. Um, and then using these police forces that have been created to catch, uh, escaped slaves to then police workers. Um, I just wanted to see what you all thought about that kind of tie in both with the birth of the what would become the modern police force and how that ties in with the attacks on workers and on in in creating institutional racism. Oh, it really is just a rat king of its surveillance, huh? All of the tales coming into this. Oh, nightmarish not. There is no untangling. Oh, Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a very big question. I think um, I, I would, I, I'm, I'm someone who doesn't have a very solid grasp of history, I would say. Um, but w- would either of y'all like to educate me on like what you were saying about the origins of the police being these uh, slave patrols? So before the 1800s there was no police force that just kind of went around to monitor people and like there there may have been like a a sheriff or a constable but they were there to just kind of solve disputes and people would come to them usually and slave patrols were you'd have the sheriff deputize a bunch of people to go and round up escaped slave uh, people and that that was the first really instance of of uh, deputized people who have the, you know, the power of the state behind them to just go around and look for people who, who they consider to be criminals um, that didn't really exist before that. And so this, it was interesting to me to learn about how in this period of time, these kind of early police forces were also being used to police workers. Mm. That was something that I first learned about in reading The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which I read probably 
I don't know, seven years ago now. I don't know. I don't know how old that book is. Yeah, it's some. It's a really interesting period of history. I think only something that has come up before in conversation several times in um, the Korean Feminist Caucus is being able to lean back on um, the the idea of a history where this was not always happening. This is not natural state of human affairs was put in place by force, it can be undone. Studying how the, this state of affairs was put into place, being this, how the structures developed that um, undergirded it, that held it up, um, we can see more clearly the forms that they take today and take lessons for how they were taken or partially constructed earlier. In the- I, I think it kind of what I think drew me to this particular issue is that it really demonstrates how these capitalist early industrialist systems could not have existed without the power of the state behind it and using state violence to prop up these systems. Yeah, man, shit sucks. Like, (laughs) across the board, not great. Not great. Not too good. So one of the other things I thought was interesting about this as a, a bit of a case study is how it really gives you a picture of how capitalism and patriarchy are intricately tied together. One of the things that was mentioned in the Jacobin article is that the women who were employed at the mill, uh, I, I assume most of them were probably married because it was hard not to be, but that the wages were actually not paid to the woman who was actually working there, but to her husband. And that that was a reinforcement of the kind of patriarchal systems that already existed, but really institutionalizing them in a, in a way that did not exist before. I think there's, I definitely don't want to, uh, the version of patriarchy that existed um, pre-industrial capitalism or pre-capitalist societies um, in a rosy light, definitely, you know, a lot good, but I think that there, there is definitely something to be said with um, a real increase in and um, uh, the the type of leverage given to individual patriarchal relations by the power of the state and by owners and employers. It's it's not just guy who lives in your house materially controlling things like you know what are we planting this year? Um, you know, do our children get to learn how to read? Like stuff like that. It's it expands into um, sort of different corners of people's lives. That makes sense. It does to me. Katie, one of the things that you said during the happy hour event or, or pointed out is that in a small town like Pawtucket, a strike necessarily is a general strike. And you kind of highlighted that when you were talking earlier about how this led to kind of a wave of kind of class consciousness throughout the, that area. Um, and I've just, I just thought that was interesting that back when you literally had company towns. If the workers for the company go on strike, it literally affects everything else. And I wonder how that applies to today. So, you know, we live in Seattle, which is sometimes called a company town because Amazon controls so much of what's going on here. And how if the Amazon workers, both the tech and warehouse workers ever built a solidarity to strike together, how that would actually affect our entire city here Oof. girl can dream can't she i don't know Takeshi, what do you think about it i mean i i'd obviously love to see um 
that level of solidarity. Uh, I, I think so. I, I've lived up here. Um, I moved out here in October of 2016. Uh, so I'm very much getting, still getting a, a feel for the place. Um, and yeah, it just doesn't seem like there is. Uh, Amazon is big. Microsoft is also big. I mean, there's there's a lot of different tech here. And um, speaking as a tech worker, I think there's plenty of uh, artificial divisions that we as tech workers can create, even among ourselves, to uh, diminish solidarity and to to not to to try to see ourselves as above the working class or above the uh, the warehouse workers or whoever's doing actual logistics. And if that were to dissolve, I think that boy, we we might see some really positive gains uh, here, not not just in Seattle and not just in Washington, but um, yeah, wherever wherever those two are aligned, which seems global. Yeah, I think it's also um, definitely a uh, a big obstacle. Um, and this is well, that um, definitely talk about a lot, especially in the DSA, especially with workplace organizing, strike support, stuff like that, even tenant organizing, is um, the sense of alienation from each other, even from your own workers, your your people in the same apartment building, people in your neighborhood, people in your city. Um, a, a sense of they're not, not having those strong social bonds that um, mean that you can I am each other. I am completely blanking on the source of this quote. Would love to be corrected if anyone knows the the source of it. Um, but you know, something that um, an Amazon worker who came to talk at our last general meeting said was that you know progress moves at the speed of trust, like that. Like you can't get ahead of yourself when it comes to organizing. Like you can't kind of move people around like chess pieces. You can can walk next to people but you have to build these relationships and then you have to earn that trust and i think that's something that if there is to be anything good that comes out of this covid um crisis i i hope that for my fellow tech workers we see that um <laughs> a lot of our tech work is fundamentally dependent on a lot of logistics and a lot of other people's effort um that goes largely unseen from our side and uh, largely unappreciated. I, I would hope that we, I would hope that we come out the other side of this understanding that even though, um, say, we work on servers that exist in data centers in particular cities around the world, um, those are managed by people. Those are uh, those are serviced by people. Um, the supplies to to feed the people um, that manage those servers are also. Um, created and managed and moved and delivered by people as well. And this, this whole thing is kind of, uh, I mean, it feels, it feels trite to say, but we are kind of all in this together as workers. Uh, we depend on each other. We are all kind of bound by a, a billion invisible links. And um, I, I really hope that, um, that during, during this, we are seeing those links that, that tie us together and, I know for myself, I am really missing that. I am, I am missing the uh, the ability to go outside and uh, to to see all the different people that uh, that make up my community. Yeah, I definitely feel the same way. And I just want to 
just want to go to Pike Place Market at like noon on a Saturday and just kind of wiggle through a big old crowd of tourists got <laughs> salmon. Yes. You know? That sounds gross. That sounds kind of gross to do. Um, hey, listen, I'm speaking my heart. My- yeah. <laughs> so true me right now. I'm not really a crowds person, but even, even I would join you in that. I'm like, I'm a crowds person. And right, like right now, right now, I'm like, I... I like want I want to be in like a beehive, you know. <laughs> so I just have a couple more questions for you both, but before I get to that, I just wanted to ask if either of you have any kind of final thoughts on the Pawtucket Mill strike as both just an interesting case study and for any lessons that we can perhaps learn from it. I mean, something that really stands out to me is that a thing that they on an immediate, extremely militant, um, destructive strike over is something that is similar or the same to that my friends have had on them in work environments. It's like basically a an hour reduction in pay and a certain you know, segment of the workers at a 25% reduction in pay. Um, I mean, and I know... I know some people who would feel that there wasn't anything they could really do in response to that. Another thing that um, in discussion was um, one of our comrades is in a non-DSA reading group, and she was talking about this um, really amazing article. I can we can link in the show notes or something, but it was it's about um, anxiety as the dominant mode of capitalist repression right now. Or it used to be before that it was boredom and before that it was misery. Huh. I think um, and I'm th- when we were thinking about um, things that keep us from taking action, I think that there's, it's astonishing to see this kind of haze of error and precarity that um, it's not always existed like this. And it's, um, it, it gives me um, a lot of joy to see just like, you know, like, oh, our pay is being cut by one hour. Okay, fuck you. We're burning down the building. <laughs> like, oh. it, that's an interesting example that to look at that from the Pawtucket Mill strike, because that's what motivated the workers then to strike. And to compare that to right now, which I just saw, I think yesterday, that Amazon is ending its hazard pay bonus, where it increased the their workers' wages by $2 an hour, and that's I don't know if that's now ended or if it's ending soon, but contrasting that with the fact that Jeff Bezos's wealth has increased by another like 30 something billion dollars, despite the fact that we were in this crisis oh and, God. The, you know, the the <laughs> him as the owner of Amazon continues to grow his wealth, um, but can't afford supposedly to continue paying uh, $2 extra per hour to the workers who are literally risking their lives to make his company work. Yeah, I think that is, uh, I mean, the world is replete with examples of uh, owners and capitalists extracting as much as they can from everything around them. Uh, <laughs> we are just at the like, simply the highest level of parody. Like, I, I mean, I know he's not a trillionaire yet, but the fact that that we could have a trillionaire walking around on the earth and all this shit is going on. It's just like, and I know we talk a lot about the contradictions of capitalism, but like, ooh, we mama 
You like these contradictions. Oh, baby. Yeah, that one got away from me. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> God. Well, I really appreciate you both coming to talk about this um, this event, the Labor History Happy Hour, giving us a peek into the Korean Feminist Caucus uh, events. Uh, have you all decided what the next Labor History Happy Hour will be about? Which event or which topic? I think, are we doing Lowell? Yeah, that was uh, what you mentioned about those. Those, man. Um, yeah, those actions spreading to other mills. I think the next one is going to be a Lowell Mill. And so how often are these events going to happen and where can people find them? They will happen every three weeks. If you are looking for more information, ask in the Queer and Feminist channel on Slack. Or, or look at events. Yes. Yes, the events page on Seattle DSA. We also have a reading group every two weeks. Um, if you simply can't get enough right now, and or if you have a project idea, if you're like, you know, just raring to go with a um, campaign that you think would fit under the auspices of the Queer and Feminist banner uh, in our chapter, email us, look us up, post in Slack. It's a thing you want to do, and we will like help you your best organizer and do the damn thing. Hell yeah. I'd open baby. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you both coming and, and talking to me. I think that the queer and feminist caucus has a really great little community and it's great to have a little peek inside of it to share with our listeners. So Katie and Takeshi, thank you for joining me in the Cascadia solidarity zone. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks Joshua. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can email us at CascadiaSolidarityZone at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at CSZ underscore pod. Please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating. Cascadia Solidarity Zone is an independent media project and does not represent the official views or positions of Seattle DSA. Thank you for listening.